Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the Eternal Optimist podcast. My name is Matt Drinkon and I am the hostess with the mostest, even though I'm actually not a hostess. I'm just a host. We're gonna have a good time today, my friends. This podcast is all about hope and you can do it too attitudes. And we share stories of successful people who may look like they're cool and calm on the surface, but literally they are paddling like a duck underneath the water. We've got one of those such stories today. Before we get to that story, I'm gonna invite you to like, share, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Please share this with someone, someone that would appreciate an inspirational story. Share it with someone. Let's build this community. Let's make this impact on the world last, and let's make it stronger and stronger and stronger, my friends. Thank you for that. Also, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Eternal Optimist Podcast. And every morning, Monday through Saturday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I do a live stream for 10 to 20 minutes and share some musings and some learnings from the coaching world, from the world of living your best self and getting to know yourself. What we do as eternal optimists, we learn and we grow, and we share stories every day. So I look forward to seeing you there, friends. It is a, is a pleasure to serve you. Now, the introduction you've all been waiting for, Mr. Josh Goodman. Whew. This man followed the corporate American protocol of how to do things. And he was denied credit for a large business sale that he had made. So after getting destroyed and just shafted in corporate America, and how many of us have that story, right? After getting shafted in corporate America, he wanted to come up with something different and new. He had an idea come upon him one day that he left what he was doing. He stayed up till 3 a.m. that night, and he came up with this brilliant business plan. Today's story is literally a masterclass in resilience, in patience, in the ability to pivot. Josh will illustrate for you quite clearly how he is not scared of challenges and instead, instantly, he starts to think, how do I make this happen? In this episode, we talk about his story from the early days as an employee who was literally stolen from, to his conception of the idea of pour my beer, to the unpaid work he did on the floor of a bar just so he could learn how the beer dispensers work to partners overseas, to lawsuits, to having to sell on a trip to keep the company alive. Man, talk about pressure as a sales professional. If you don't sell on this trip, then your company's gonna go under. Think about that. Josh is engaging, he's passionate. He is a walking case study of how eternal optimists think. Enjoy this connection with my friend and fellow Cutco alumnus and front row dad, Mr. Josh Goodman. Cheers, friends, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. 
Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. Without any further ado, it's my sincere pleasure to introduce our audience to a man who needs no introduction. The man who will look back in the many years from now and will say he ran the largest company in the world. <laughs> Maybe I'm smiling as I say that, but I have so much faith in Mr. Josh Goodman. He's been a friend for a long time, and he's someone that leads an organization and has a global impact. And it's just it's such a pleasure to have you here today, Josh. Welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Mr. Drinkon. You are my spirit animal. Oh, heck yeah. I just got my own uh, category. I'm Christopher Lockhead would be fired up that the category design, I am a spirit animal. So thank you for calling me a spirit animal. I appreciate that. I'm sure I'll have fun with that. Josh, I love to play around and I love you. We we're friends, but I'd also like to go deep and get into a hard. And that subject is challenges on the way to building your current empire organization. You've had some challenges along the way. So I'd love to go back in time and uh, you can go personal, you can go professional challenge, entrepreneurial challenge. I love to start somewhere in the past and then go forward on some of the things that have been very uh, challenging and eye-opening for you in your career so far, Josh. I think a lot of people go through similar parts in life that I've gone through, but maybe they handle them differently. But I would say the most significant challenge that really sent me down the path of entrepreneurship, I was working in the staffing industry. I was business development for a publicly traded company called Moodis. I've been doing that for a few years, and I brought in a very large client that had never been brought in before. It was a large energy company in Baltimore. And I was being, I don't want to say groomed, but I was getting to work directly with the CEO of a publicly traded company, which I think very few people in their mid to late 20s have access to. So I felt like I had an unfair advantage because I was getting coached daily, you know, by this gentleman. And eventually I was able to secure and land about a $10 million project that would have equated about $250,000 in commission to me on a yearly basis. So we were going to become a prime vendor for this large energy company. I come to find out without getting too far down the rabbit hole that the person that makes the decision from an HR perspective did not like me because I went around her to, I guess, get better relationships with the managers. That was direct guidance from my mentor and CEO of the company. He basically said, forget about HR, go around them, work directly with the managers, get them to buy into you and, and the company, and then you know get the org chart. And I just followed his recipe step-by-step. And as you know, in the Cutco days, it's follow the recipe on the box and you get the muffins that come out. One of my mentors back then, Rich Plaskin, was a big advocate for that. And so I followed the recipe and I was expecting mm-hmm. to get these amazing muffins that also came with a quarter million dollars a year in commission. And I come to find out that the woman told our CEO in one of the final meetings, we look forward to working with your company, but we will not work with Josh Goodman because he went around me. He decided to go to managers directly. Now, my CEO did not disclose to her that I told him to do that, which resulted in the company getting the business, Josh not getting any of the commission and having to witness a colleague who'd not sold anything in six months, get this lottery ticket of a customer that was going to result in a quarter million a year in commission. As you can imagine... That hurt. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, to put it mildly, that hurt. Take me back to that exact day when you had to have that conversation. I think a lot of us who became entrepreneurs have some birthing through fire and pain a conversation like on that particular day. We had uh, many sales companies, they have incentive rewards. So the topic of the meeting that day for like an all company, there's 50 offices. So they had an all company 
announcement of where the incentive trip was going to be. And then he said he had some really big news to share at the end of the conversation. And during this time, we're waiting to hear back from the energy company from Baltimore. So I'm like, we should hear back any day that we're going to be approved vendors. This is a huge windfall for me personally, you know, in my mid to late 20s. And they announced that they're going to have the event in Florida, a place called The Breakers. If you've ever been to Florida, it's a really cool beach resort. And so I was like, sweet, I'm going to crush it this year and hit the incentive trip and get to Breakers. And then he finishes the call with, and we just want to announce that the Modus Maryland office has just secured one of the largest contracts ever on the East Coast as a preferred vendor with Constellation Energy Group. And I was like, wow, like they're announcing we won this contract on the whole company. And then I look at my manager and he's looking at me and I just instantly know something's not right here. Like, why would they not celebrate with me (laughs) that we just won this massive contract when I was the one leading all the conversations and I was the one doing all the intel and getting the org charts and taking managers out to dinners and golfing and all that fun stuff. And then after the meeting, he said, hey, you're going to want to talk to Jack, which is our CEO. And I was like, okay. And so I knew something was up. And keep in mind, me and Jack would play basketball in the mornings every 6 a.m. And we'd go golfing at his country club. So he'd take me to basketball games at University of Maryland and sit front rows. We had great rapport. And as I'm walking towards his office, it's like your heart's sinking. You're experiencing this like gut-wrenching kind of like just something's wrong get into the office. And in all of our conversations, he's always been kind of hands behind his head, you know, leaning back, feeling kind of relaxed. This one, he's sitting upright in his chair, waiting for me to walk in. And he's got his hands like, you know, finger to finger, thumb to thumb, like sitting in front of him, like one of those kind of like speaking courses where they tell you to keep your hands like that. Right. And I was like, this is not going to be a good conversation. He goes on to say, that they said they didn't want to work with me. They wanted to work with another business development rep and that I would be in next in line to get the next big contract that landed in the mid-Atlantic. And I, I said, you're joking, right? Like, this is a joke. And he said, no, like, it's a done deal. And the next conversation was, well, who's going to be managing the account? And they were like, Aaron. And I was like, Aaron hasn't closed a deal in like eight months. And I left the office and I went home and just kind of thought about it. I was like, I don't even know what to do. You know, that was a dark, dark time in my life. Yeah, I can freaking imagine that. I think that I've had something similar happen to me. I feel for you right now, viscerally, the pain that must have been. My wife and I, we met in college. Uh, We both played college, hence the picture of football behind me that she so graciously gifted me. Your wife must be incredibly awesome and have a lot of patience, of course, but she must be really awesome. When she bought the train (laughs) ticket to get on this train of marriage, she didn't really have a strong understanding of the destination or the route that we were going to go. But I joke with her. I said, hopefully you're happy with the direction that's it's gone and where it is now. And as you know, any marriage, it's multiple marriages within one. You evolve as people, but the fun's evolving together. So yeah, we met in college, but we were married. We had a townhome. We didn't have kids. We had a dog. So it was more that I had painted this picture of I'm about to hit the lottery. And then I had the winning lottery ticket and then it got ripped up in front of my face or actually given to my coworker. (laughs) But through pain comes growth and I think it hardens you. I don't want to say that at that point I decided I never wanted to work for another person again, but I did not like the idea of not having control of the outcome. And that's, I'm sure, consistent with, you know, like you said, similar to your journey, you want to have control of that outcome. And it also hurt that someone who I thought was a mentor friend that had my best interest in mind just was very 
I would say unempathetic, or if that's a word, about the situation, did not try to compromise or recognize, hey, you did do all the groundwork and you did do everything I said. And the outcome is that you get nothing and we get everything, (laughs) you know? So that was tough to swallow. And I did talk to my dad a lot during that period because he had a similar experience before he started his own business. But to your point earlier, it's like you connect that dots backwards. And if I had gotten that, I may never have started this company. I may still be in the staffing world, comfortably living a decent salary and commission. Yeah. Well, I love the way that you pivoted there, that as I'm watching you and feeling in this conversation, it feels like you've moved on past that. It's not something that's still a a hiccup or a deep scar that you can't get over. You talked about it, you shared your story, and it just feels like you have found a way to move on. You pivoted, you moved on. I love that about you, Josh, is that you found a way and you got all the crap dumped on you right there. Like everything that you would expect not to have happen, the mentor, cold shoulder, you know, the way you're supposed to do it, all the people that you serve, the managers, the people on the other end, none of them make the decision or have the, have the power to do this. And it's all taken away in a moment and you roll with a punch. So what happened next in your journey, Josh, after that experience? I was just talking to my wife about this last night. In my state of depression, I didn't turn to alcohol. I didn't turn to drugs or anything. I turned to playing Madden football online. <laughs> Well, you know, like I was still collecting a paycheck and I was doing work, but I was playing Madden sometimes four hours a day just to kind of like numb the pain, I guess. I was like, I don't want to go out and sell for this company or this man that did me wrong. And I essentially was able to keep current customers satisfied. I didn't develop any new business. And ultimately, we got to the point where they were like, look, we just got to part ways. And I said, that's fine as long as you pay me out my commission for the remaining contracts that I have and I'll leave in a manner that's not disruptive. So that I parted ways with that company. And that's where I started doing a lot of reading about entrepreneurship. And one of the common themes was find a problem that you can solve and that you can monetize. And the bigger the problem, the bigger the business and opportunity can be. So I went through a few, I would say, uh, experiments. One was my dad owning a carpet business. I thought there would be a really big opportunity to set up carpet sales in college dorm move-in days. When colleges are moving in, hey, they need carpets, right? But my dad and I purchased 200 carpets, which was, I don't know, about $7,000 retail or not retail, but uh, cost. And then I rented a truck and I set up three campuses that I was going to put these on. And I figured I could make like 20 or 30 grand pretty quickly. I proceeded to not make any money. The three colleges I tried to do it at, one of them, I think I sold 10 carpets for the whole day. Like no one bought the six by 10 or six by nines or the eight by tens. And then I went to another college and I only sold about like 20. So I had 200 that I had to sell. So now I had 150 carpets in the back of a truck that I had to somehow find a place to put. And then the third and final one was at University of Maryland. And I was like, oh, this is a huge campus. And I had to go through the process of getting permits and stuff like that. And it ended up the day of move-in was an absolute monsoon rain pour, like epic. Biblical amounts of rain fell that day. (laughs) So I did not get a chance to sell So now I'm stuck with 150 carpets and the bill. I ended up putting some in storage and then going to like three carpet stores around the DC metro area and doing consignment. So for like three years, I was getting these consignment checks when they'd sell the carpet because I was like, look, if you can put them there when you sell them, pay me. It was the hardest that ever worked for the least amount of money. And I'd also lost like 20 pounds in the process because it's very tiresome to move carpet, very heavy pieces of material. And I'm moving them from the trailer to the storage units. And it was an inside joke at my neighborhood for a while. Like, oh, you know, know where I can get a good carpet? (laughs) (laughs) 
after that painful experience, I was like, well, I'm not doing something like that again. I got to go down something that I feel has got more potential or whatever. And I ended up just at a bar in Baltimore and uh, Baltimore, Maryland, I lived at the time. It was a place called, you know, Mother's Federal Hill Grill. And I was meeting some buddies there to get a drink. And again, I was on this mission to find a problem, not like pick a fight problem, but find a problem with how things are working. And we're sitting there and we're complaining about how long it takes to get a drink. And I was like, yeah, this is weird. Like we've been here 20 minutes and I'm starting to look at other people without a drink as well. And they're understaffed. You have the people running around trying to, it's madness. We're not getting a drink and they're not selling. So it's a dual problem. Like It just, a light bulb goes off. I said, what if you can pump gas and you pay for whatever you put in your gas tank? What if they did that for your beverages, your beers, your wines, your cocktails? And they're like, I would pay an extra dollar or two just to get the drink when I want it. And so then the light bulb went off and I was like, well, it's liquid. It can be measured. It can be managed. Like, let me see what I can do here. So I literally left the bar, went home and started on a business plan around like self-service beverages. Because of that problem that you saw. Wow. Well, I was up till probably 3 a.m. And I still have the PowerPoint. It's really sad to look at because it's so, (laughs) I mean, it's sad, but it's funny. But it was adult beverage dispense systems. That was the first night of brainstorming, I guess you could say. Awesome. Up to 3 a.m. first night, adult beverage dispense systems. I still have the PowerPoint. What a great story so far. Let's keep going. Yeah, I think taking action was the critical thing. And then as I started sharing this idea with friends, while I was still employed with the Modus company, people were like, that's got some legs. I like that. And then one of my friends sent me a link to a company in Atlanta that was doing beer taps at the table with metering system and valving system. And that led me to actually going down to the master's for the first time uh, as a golf addict. I'm sure you can appreciate that. So I, I was able to work out a deal with a buddy of mine that lives in Augusta. And it's all about connecting people, right? So I had a buddy in Augusta. And then I had a girl I used to go to the bus stop with is married to a professional golfer that Johnson Wagner, he's a Charlotte guy, I think. Good mustache. Yeah, the mustache. He needed a place to stay because he had just won the Houston Open and qualified for the master's the Sunday before the master's started. So I connected the two and they ended up, you know, he rented his house to her and I was like, they were like, Hey, well, do you have tickets to the masters? Like, no, but I'd love them. And they were like, all right, well, you know, we'll get you some practice round tickets. And so my dad and I ended up going down to the masters, but that's when I met this guy in Atlanta to see if there was a partnership opportunity for the self-serve beer tap systems that led to me trying to market for him. He only had one location and really no real, I guess, money behind him or anything like that. It was just, he saw the concept in South America He contracted a company in Ireland to build a self-pour system for him. They did it. And then he was trying to figure out how to get more bars and restaurants to buy into this put beer taps to the table thing. And I said, well, I can sell. I believe in the concept. Like, let's figure out a way to work together. And unfortunately, things didn't work out with him, you know, partly because I went 0 for 50 on my first sales attempts all around Baltimore and D.C. No one wanted to pay to rip up floors and run beer lines and for really what was in one location in Atlanta. And that led to the conversation of, well, what if I built a unit that was like a mobile system that I could just, you know, I didn't have to sell them, I could lease them. And so that became the next kind of focal point. I used some money, about 15 grand to build two units. I leased them to a bar in Baltimore, the same one that I was at when I came up with the idea. And they signed a six month lease, which I learned that that bars and restaurants, when the beers that they have on tap is typically because of the relationships they have with the distributors. And I remember after I got the guy to sign a six month lease, which was going to cover my cost, you should put some local like Trogues on there, like some really good beers that I thought would be heavy movers. And he was like, no, we're going to put Miller Lite and Blue Moon on there. And I was like, really? I was like, nothing against those two. But he was like, yeah, they're paying for these tables. 
Ah. <laughs> so I learned something new at that point. Prior to that experience, something I failed to mention is to learn everything I could about the draft beer and beverage industry. I reached out to one of the local, I would say, masterminds of that world with Dispense, a company called AC Beverage. And I just said, look, I want to learn everything about how beer gets from the keg to the tap. What can I do? And he said, well, we're not hiring right now. I was like, well, great. I'm not looking for a job. I said, I'm willing to come work for free. Like, just show me how you do everything. And so he said, well, we're doing a big project tonight. You want to meet me off the uh, exit 43 or whatever in 95? And I was like, yeah, that's right near where I live. So I get in the car with him. We get to some Eastern New Jersey or whatever. We get there and we work from like 8 p.m. to 9 a.m. So it was an all-nighter my first night working for free. But I learned a ton. And then I got to look, you know, meet some of his team. And I got to go on a few more projects. And I learned a lot about the draft beer world, the industry, how things work, the evolution. And that, I think it's important to put yourself out there at any point in time to learn and be willing to just do it for free. Like it's not about trading dollars for hours. It's about trading time for knowledge. That was a good one right there. Yeah. So you did this while you're still working full time. No, there was a gray area where they saw some emails in my draft folder of my, I guess they were able to see like, not that I was sending emails from Modus, but I had draft emails to bar owners in saved on my server, but I was not sending it from there. And I was meeting them outside of business hours, but they basically said, look, we can see you're doing something else. But I said, well, they're just in my draft folder. What does that prove? And they said, well, you know, we can tell you've mentally checked out and whatever. So that kind of closed that door. And then for a few months, I was able to do some more staffing outside of just direct with some of my previous customers. I didn't have a non-compete or anything. So it allowed me to experiment with what I was trying to figure out the next stage. But really, you know, 2000, I would say nine to 2012, that's when I had partnered with this group out of Ireland. They had these draft tables that they had sold to Diageo and Guinness. They were self-serve draft tables. And their whole purpose of them in Ireland was that they wanted to convert Heineken drinkers to Carlsberg drinkers so that on the tables they had a Guinness, which everyone loves, you know. My favorite. Carlsberg, big Guinness guy. And Carlsberg, which is green, same as Heineken, but Ireland, the Heineken is their preferred lager if you're in Ireland. So the, the goal was to get Heineken drinkers to, instead of going to the bar and waiting for Heineken, to just pour themselves a Carlsberg and convert some of that loyalty. What I didn't know when I first got engaged with these guys, so it was kind of cool. I reached out to them, pretended like I was an interested bar owner in Pennsylvania. And I said, hey, I want to put one of your draft tables in my bar in Pennsylvania. What's the next steps? I could tell by the response that they had no idea the regulations that the United States has around self-service drinking. So they responded and said something like, yeah, we've got global approval or we've got international approval to sell this anywhere. I was like, can you show me a certificate? And they, of course, didn't have anything. So I ended up disclosing to them, hey, look, I've been in the self-serve thing for about a year now. I understand the laws that come with doing this. I understand what you need to do. And they said, well, we're looking for someone to run the United States. Would you be willing to come over and meet with our leadership team? So they got me a ticket to Ireland in December of 2009, and I got to fly over to Ireland. I was excited. I was like, I'd never been to Ireland. I got to go there for free. They took me on a tour of the whole island, showing me some of the pubs that they were in. And I actually got to be a part of an installation. And then that spurred things off. That's when I became an employee again, I guess you could say, with them. It was the worst rookie contract anyone's ever signed. Oh, <laughs> it was Not to classify all Irish people as hard negotiators. And I knew it was a terrible contract. I just said, look, I'm going to prove my worth and they can't live without me. So the rookie contract I signed was coming off of Modus where I was making mid six figures or whatever. I think it was a $40,000 salary, not terrible, with nothing else except for a 5% 
of net profits bonus, which we probably weren't going to profit for a few years, but the way they sold it to me, we sold Diageo 3 million euro of these tables and the population in Ireland is 7 million. So it's roughly half. So if the United States is 300 million people, you should do 150 million or so, maybe a hundred just to be conservative. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is that, I don't believe in those numbers, but let's go. Let me prove it. I love your mindset there, Josh, around let me prove my worth. And another great learning lesson that you're kind of sprinkling along the path here. So thanks for that. Yeah, it was definitely a unique experience, but there was no clear map to growing that concept in the United States. Plus, there was a lot of different challenges. Like in Ireland, they made one sale to one distributor Diageo that was worth $3 million. In the United States, that's illegal. You cannot sell to the distributor to give to the end customer because we have different laws in the United States that ensure that the little guys have just as much an opportunity as the big guys. That was an oversight on their part. I don't think they understood that you could not sell to a distributor and they couldn't give it away to a bar or pub. That was a very different mindset. So all of my sales had to be direct to the end customer. And if they could supplement that cost of sales by the people that mothers did, then that's up to them. I had another customer, they were like, I said, why are you putting Guinness in Miller Lite? That seems like a weird combo. He said, because the Guinness rep is buying a $500 burger every Wednesday and the Miller Lite rep's buying a $700 burger every Thursday to supplement the cost of the system. There's ways around it, I guess you could say. I'm sure they've tightened it since that. That was 2010. But that was a unique experience. Again, I was able to get a business off the ground and it came with all of its own challenges. Like Because our servers for our email were hosted in Waterford, Ireland, we couldn't get emails past 12 o'clock because for some reason, every time they'd leave, the servers went down. So I couldn't get or send emails. So I think some people would just sit there and complain like, oh, this stinks. I can't send or get emails. Can you guys fix this? I just went out and bought another website and started using that email as the way I was communicating to people. And then that solved that problem. We weren't relying on their poor technical savvy. So then we grew that company from like 800,000 or 200,000 the first year to 800,000 the second year to one point. We were on pace to do 1.6 the third year. And it was just myself, Declan, my business partner here, and you know one or two other people. So it was a pretty lean business that we were growing. But then the sun set on the Irish company in regards to their financial problems, which we were not made aware of. And we found out through my business partner's brother that they had filed for bankruptcy and they were going into receivership. And then they kind of spun it to us like, hey, well, why don't you start this new company in the United States and transition, you know, we'll start this up fresh. And then at the same time, they asked us to take down all the locations of our current customers because essentially they owed Diageo money. So they had sold 800 beer tables to Diageo. Diageo said, look, we're having problems with them. They were warehousing the tables and they said, if you want to buy some of them back, you can just buy them back as you sell them or ship them out of inventory. Well, every time we got 40 tables, I was paying them three grand a table when I'd sell it. They weren't giving the money to Diageo. So when Diageo did a stock take, they were like, there's 176 tables missing. You owe us 3,000 times 176. And they were like, we don't have that. And then that's when they filed for bankruptcy. And I got stuck in the middle of that. And that's Declan and myself decided, look, we like the direction we're going as the company, but we don't like the people we're in business with. So we ended up starting our own company, which ended up being Innovative Tap Solutions, the, the parent company for Pour My Beer. That was scary to go to start fresh with new knowledge. We built the website, but then the big challenge there was who was our technology provider? Because before it was the Irish company and indirectly there was a company in Austria we'd been working with. 
And so I would say 2013, 14, I talk about stressful kind of lulls. So that was a lull. We were excited that we were starting our own company and we were the 100% owners of it, but we didn't have a clear path or a large amount of capital to really help us make it through that, which led to, we took on some partners, not partners, but we started reselling another company's technology in 2013. It's now our competitor, but we sold their first 30 systems. They had built a technology that was self-service but they had not ever sold it because it was a lawyer and a technical person. So that doesn't typically add up to great marketing or sales. But Declan and I had the sales and the marketing. So we were able to get it on Bar Rescue when we sold 30 systems. But we realized that we just weren't aligned morally or technically with them because they didn't care about customers the way we did. We would go out of our way to make sure every customer had an amazing experience. And whenever things went wrong with them, they'd point at us and say, this is your problem. You fix it. And that came to its boiling point at the end of 2000 or middle of 2014, where there was a customer that had a whole keg leak on their floor like a week before their opening night. And they said, look, there's a cracked valve, which is a key component to the system. And we bought it from this company in California. And we said, look, the owner said it's going to cost two grand. Let's just split it. Like clearly the cracked valve, they showed us a picture of it. And they said, well, no, we're not splitting that with you. And at the time we only had like probably five grand in our checking account. So Taking two grand out of it was going to be very painful, but it was the right thing to do. I did it. I paid them the two grand and I essentially broke up with the company in California and said, we can't work with you. Like if you can't care for your customers, like that's just, and we're out there installing these and supporting them. Like that's just not a good relationship. There's a entrepreneur magazine that listed out the different chapters. So that was chapter two. Now we're going into chapter three, which would be the actual like partnership with the Austrian company, which that's the best part of the story, in my opinion, because I always say you have to go through really crappy relationships to find and appreciate the good ones. Yes. And so the guy in Atlanta, somewhat sociopathic, he tried to get me to sign a 30-year non-compete. So that one was gone, obviously. That was the first one. The second one was the guys in Ireland that went bankrupt. And they just were not good people. They're the ones that I may have mentioned, they sued us federally. So rather than paying us out the commission they owed us, they decided to sue us federally and try to put us out of business. And we had taken out business loans just to get the business off the ground. And they drained about $30,000 of our account just in fighting them legally, which was painful and not fun. And it put a lot of stress on our relationship, my business partner and I, and we made it through that. Then they actually simultaneously from suing us, they paid a PR company to promote the fact that they were suing us. And then they sent that link to all of our prospects. So I then had to go to each prospect and explain to them, this is false. We're going to win this case. Like, But you know, you've heard the saying, the only one that wins in a lawsuit is the lawyers. We won our case. The law firm that they hired, I told the lawyer, I said, hopefully they're paying you up front because they're notorious for never paying their invoices. And sure enough, I found out they ran up a bill of like 50000 with that lawyer and never paid him. Oh. <laughs> so, but we won. And then going to the last chapter was with the group out of California. So after going through three unhealthy, unsuccessful relationships, I finally partnered with this group out of Austria that I've done a lot of projects with. So I used a book out of the old Cutco playbook of I'm going to be in your neighborhood, love to stop by. Now, their neighborhood happens to be a different country on a seven hour flight away. But I said, hey, I'm going to be in Austria for some other business meetings. We've done a lot of projects together. I'd love to meet with you and just see where this might go. And so I met with the owner, Herman, and laid out kind of my plan and my vision. And he said, I wasn't aware that you were the one actually selling and installing all of our systems in the United States, but we'd love to work with you. So the only thing holding us back from working together at that time was that there was a gentleman in Ireland that was kind of a middleman that had signed a contract with them that said as long as he bought 50 systems from them a year, 50 self-serve systems, it would renew his contract. 
And then he would continue to have their sole distribution of that product. What he didn't disclose to them is he wasn't buying any of them. I was buying them. He was basically buying them on my behalf. So I was renewing his contract every time I bought more systems. And once I found that out, I said, I'm not buying from him anymore because I don't want to renew the contract. And that was a little bit of a curveball that I wasn't expecting that I was going to be not able to buy direct. And luckily, I want to say like October when this conversation was happening. And instead of buying the remaining 10 systems from him, I said, look, I'm not going to buy them. So the contract didn't renew. And that allowed me to work directly with the Austrian company, which started, like I said, the chapter that we're currently in and really the growth. So when people say, when did the company start? I don't give them the long-winded version that you've gotten and your guests have just heard. Or I started in 2015 because really that's when the magic really started to come together. I went into that relationship saying, I want a product that my six-year-old son can install, support, and manage. And that was the antithesis of the construction of the business and the product. And they delivered on that successfully. So I actually had a video of my son doing an installation to, to prove to customers that it is very simple to install, you know? What? <laughs> it's phenomenal. Man, what a great story so far. I'm glued to this. And now a quick word from a very important person. Hi, I'm your host, Matt Drinkon of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I wanted to take this opportunity to personally thank our podcast production team at Amplify Media. Their leader is Hector Santiesteban. Hector Santiesteban. And he's also a Cutco alumnus. He's a front row dad like me. We met when he was referred to me by one of the top podcast hosts in the entire world, the Perpetual Traffic Podcast by Qasem Aslam. Qasem said, you must meet Hector. And I've only had my expectations exceeded time and again. Well, I met Hector and my expectations have also been exceeded time and again. So if you're interested in starting a podcast or in checking out our production team, ping me or reach out to Amplify Media and Hector Santiesteban. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Now, back to the show. I don't even want to ask questions. I just want to listen. It's so compelling of a story. This is the stuff that like giants are made of. You've been through so much muck to get to now, we can start to grow. So take us from 2015 uh, to today, Josh. Where are we and yeah. what happened in the last seven years? You need that optimism, as I'm speaking to the eternal optimist, at various stages. You need those little wins to reignite your flame because sometimes the flame starts to dimmer, you know, dim a little bit. And just getting that win, like getting to see a product that I would own come to life in 2015. And I had a book that we were talking about that's coming out in January, Tap the Big Idea. But the start of it starts with Austria, me being in Austria in 2015 and getting to see the product for its first time in existence, like one that I had built and that I would own. And just this feeling of, I guess you could say, it's like you're stranded at sea, you have no wind, and all of a sudden this huge gust of wind comes behind you. That feels like when you see something come to life. But what I didn't realize, the evolution of that product was yet to be determined, but I was excited to have something I could sell. Because for those not familiar with self-serve beverages, the typical process is you open a tab, then you can pour whatever you want and it accumulates how much you're pouring of every different product and every product has a different price point. So at the end of the night, you just pay for whatever you've dispensed. We had nailed what I call part of the internal hamburger part of the service experience because a hamburger has a top bun, meat, and then a bottom bun. So the top bun being checking into our location, the middle meat being all the transactions that happen while you're there. And then the bottom bun being like, let's get out of here. Let me close out the tab. Our meat was amazing. Like the transactions in between were great, but onboarding customers was a dual entry process. 
and offboarding customers was a dual entry process. So I didn't realize that I'd failed so miserably at that until I went to a high volume location and saw a line literally out the door. It was embarrassingly long. And I asked the owner, I'm like, what's going on here? He said, well, you're not integrated with any of the point of sale systems. So it takes us twice as long to get people set up. And then when they're ready to leave, that process takes twice as long. So sprinkling that into the evolution of 2015 to present, the first two years was just me selling. It was me selling the dream, the product. I would carry around a little briefcase with my screen in it so I could show people how it worked. I went on some solo missions. Like one, I flew out to California. I always call it Break Your Spirit Airlines. So I was really excited about three meetings that I had out in California because I needed to get these sales to get the money so I could pay the vendor. And I was like, I just got to come back. I believe it was four or five meetings. And I had to come back with at least three sales with money in my pocket. And the first one I went to was, I'm in Chicago at the time. And you know I was only 15 minutes from the airport, but it was about a 30, 40 minute Uber ride. And I had a flight at 7 a.m. or something like that. I get to the airport and I'm not an unexperienced traveler. I checked to make sure the flight was on time. I checked to make sure it was updated. I get all the way through security, get to the gate. And they're like, sorry, this flight's not here. You can come back tomorrow. Oh. Talk about you know a letdown. A, I'd gotten up at like 5.30 to make sure that I was on time for this flight. I took the Uber. I did it all over the next day, flew back to LA. And I had this whole thing mapped out of flying to LA, all the meetings up the coast, and then I'd fly out of San Francisco. And needless to say, I was able to leave that trip with two checks for around $70,000 to keep me going. I always joke about that trip. I mean, the trip probably cost $400, $500, but it saved the company's life. And it got us our first few accounts. And then one of the customers that didn't start with us went with our competitor because they were like, well, they're closer. They're in California. You're in Chicago. And the irony behind that is they eventually did switch to us because they just realized how poor the technology was and how much better ours was. So that was 2015. 2016, I hired a CTO that happened to be a buddy of mine. I call that the CTO experiment. He was a great dude, really hard worker, but he was transitioning from like a massive company of IBM to a tiny company with hardly any resources. That was a good experiment, I guess you could say, but it ultimately uh, it didn't work out long-term because he needed to make IBM money like right away. And it was a startup year, year month to month sometimes. Then in 2016, we got a, a small investment from an angel investor in Chicago that kind of helped tidy up some of our bills that we owed to some vendors and sold 5% of the company to him. One interesting fact there is he had the option to buy another 5% for the same Pricey bought the first 5%. And I'm thankful he didn't because ultimately he would have gotten an insane deal on it. But I think he recognized that equity preservation is really key for startups and entrepreneurs, especially if you're trying to grow. So that was, you know, shout out to that dude. He's a good dude. And then the team starts growing. We went from a team of two in 2015 to a team of four or five in 2016. And then going into 2017, it was like, all right, we're going to knock this thing out, out the park. Let's bring some investors in. Let's, let's get this going. And the investors that we were going to bring in were going to were basically like middlemen to bring in other investors, which that was about three months and about thirty thousand in legal fees that didn't result in any capital entering the business. So that was a fun lesson to learn at that stage. I just love the way you have a smile on your face. Every one of these, you call them just a little lesson I learned. These are major things that would set back some people and put them back to quitting. I don't want to just gloss over that. Your just resilient and gritty attitude and way to see your way through the vision, Josh, has been a really a masterclass thus far. So I just wanted to pause on that because it's impressive. I'm in awe over here. This is an amazing story. So please, I hate to interrupt. Please continue. 
my wife's had a front row seat. Hopefully, uh, I'd love to hear her version of it too. Hopefully it, it aligns, but that was painful, but it also like, it is what it is. And luckily our business was healthy enough that it was able to sustain through, I guess, some poor decisions maybe in that regard. But then that opened up the door to another investment group out of New York City. They were at the early stages of a concept where they wanted to buy technology from companies test it out on their own restaurants and then approach the founders and see about investing in them. And these guys owned 30 restaurants in New York City, which is not cheap. And the one guy's a finance guy and the other guy's a restaurant guy. And it's called Branded Strategic. They now have 45 investments, ours being the first they ever did, which is kind of cool. But they approached me to invest in the company and their whole proposition was, it's not just about the capital, it's about the connections we can help and the structure we can help set up. And that was a timely investment. They came in at a critical point where we needed to improve our website, improve our actually hire someone to manage marketing and just some critical hires that we just couldn't afford to do without an outside investment. Plus, we were really going deep into the integrations. As you may recall, the hamburger, the hospitality hamburger, Mm -hmm. our buns were terrible. They were stale. They were moldy. They were not good. So we needed to upgrade our buns. That ended up costing, I want to say, around $600,000 to start connecting with a variety of different point of sale systems. We were able to do that. And that solved a big problem for our customers where if you've ever been in an Uber, one of the best things about it is when you literally walk out the car like you're a rock star because you don't have to pull your wallet out. You don't have to credit card out. And that was my goal. I said, I want our customers to be rock stars. They can literally walk out the door. And so memorable moments for me was getting to see a high volume location implement our system with the point of sales where you walk in, you open a tab, and then there's a drop box on the way out that says like 10%, 20%, 30%. And people can just drop their cards in whatever bucket they want to close out at. And they're done. So there's no friction. And I still get enjoyment out of seeing a high volume location with our technology, just really cranking. The largest investment, which it's still kind of surreal to say it, the largest investment, I guess, opportunity was from a small little company out of Atlanta. They make some drinks called Coca-Cola. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Kind of matches your shirt. Yeah. So they started conversations with them. I don't say this is the last challenge I'll share with you, but we started conversations with them in late 2019. And then early 2020, we'd gotten the investment agreement to kind of meet both sides, I guess, expectations. Lawyers had passed it back and forth numerous times. And I announced to our team in January at our summit in Vegas that, hey, we're accepting and we've signed the term sheet. Coca-Cola is going to be a 25% owner in our company and we're going to be expanding into all beverages. We're going to be an all beverage company. And everyone's excited. And I was like, yeah, we already have the press release. Here's a draft of it. February, if you might recall, February, March of 2020 was an interesting time to be in the United States or anywhere in the world. So I remember in February, one of my uh, investors, the first investor said, hey, are you nervous about like what's going on? Like, it looks like there's this coronavirus thing over in Europe. It's starting to pick up. I was like, it'll probably be like the bird flu or something. I can't see this really impacting us. And sure enough, the contract got kept going back and forth. And then like March 12th, I got a text message from the investor from Coca-Cola. He was like, hey, I know that we've got all the docs signed, but all of our assets have been frozen. We cannot invest in your company. There's no easy way to say that. The next question was, are you guys going to survive? <laughs> I said, I was like, absolutely. There's no chance. I was like, we'll pivot. Yes, I'm not happy to hear that this investment that we've all worked the last four months on is not going to happen, but we'll be okay. And sure enough, we made it through the pandemic. All of our customers closed down simultaneously at the same time, which is painful. And we kept going. We had some teammates take some leave. We had some salespeople take some time off. We had support that wasn't supporting anybody. So they took you know, unemployment or whatever when they could. And then lo and behold, we had like a really good June. And then we had another decent July. 
And then Coca-Cola came back to the table in August and we closed the deal in September. And so September 2020 will go down as the year that we sold 25% of the company to Coca-Cola, which was ironically like two days after my wife and I's 16th wedding anniversary. And then since then, I don't want to say it's been all cake and ice cream, but we grew significantly with their investment, doubled our sales, which was pretty cool. Then at the end of 2021, you know, someone who was really a very vital part of the team and growing it and keeping it going and cleaning up our books, our COO decided he was kind of burnt out and ready to go. We had just signed a five-year lease in his backyard, like not physically his backyard, but he lived in Frederick. Yeah. And he was like, let's have the headquarters near me. I'll run it. Everything. He's super detail-oriented. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. You're amazing at that. And so we signed the lease in like, I want to say August. And then I was told in December, he wasn't going to be with the company anymore. So now I had to get out of this five-year lease, which was another, you know, and then not to complain, but in 2020, I think I shared with you two months after the investment from Coca-Cola, we found out my son had an 11-inch tumor on his spine. My 11-year-old son was going to have to go through an 11-hour surgery, and we were going to live in a hospital for roughly a month and a half in Chicago. It was a severe up and down kind of experience as a father, as a leader. But you know, that being said, the team really stepped up. I mean, my absence during February was when the actual surgery was, and my son's made a full recovery, but it teaches you a lot about, I guess, just your team and their work ethic. And it also ties them in. Like They can see like that was a very painful time for my family. And we went from this extreme high of, we closed this deal with the largest beverage company in the world to, wow, we've got a pretty significant challenge ahead of us. But that made 2021 a growth, a very interesting growth year for our business, for our people. And like I said, it's like once you've been hit with all these challenges, you're not scared about the challenge because your mind just goes right into, all right, we'll get through this. How? I mean, that's the next challenge, but it did open the door to bringing on a COO that has scaled and sold companies publicly, which now we've got a new COO. And ironically, our previous COO is back working with us in a leadership capacity and managing operations and projects. So it ended up being, I would say, like a nine month sabbatical for him versus like a I'm never coming back kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Josh, if we can pause for a second here, you just said what I would call another major nugget of wisdom you shared, not scared of challenges. You simply think, how do I solve it? I, I love that mentality and little drops of wisdom throughout our discussion today. And it's been a real pleasure to listen. And I've been so captivated by your story. I just want to thank you for sharing that with us. I'd love to ask you, I mean, when does the book come out? How do we find out more about you, what your company's up to? Just give us more details. We'd love to keep in touch and follow this. I started writing the book in 2020 when I was kind of in that what do we do phase. And I said, there's some great stories along the way that hopefully you've enjoyed some of them yeah. during this call and serve your listeners. But there's a lot more depth to the book. And the book comes out, we don't have a target, an actual date, but it's going to be mid to late January. It's called Tap the Big Idea. You can actually go to the website right now and you can purchase it to pre-order and you get the first chapter emailed to you directly just from filling out the form and getting the pre-order. But the whole Christopher Lockheed, he was an inspiration to the title of the book, the total title. It's Tap the Big Idea, Creating a New Category in the World's Second Oldest Industry. Hmm. Wow. 
Yeah, actually, I connected with Chris uh, one just through a mutual friend, John Berghoff, who I'm sure you're familiar with. But he actually gave me some really good insight just when I emailed him podcasts and things like that, too. So, yeah, the book comes out late January. And again, I wrote it more for entrepreneurs who may be nervous about like, oh, I don't have the degree or whatever. It shows the unfiltered process of starting a business without the complexity that some of like the MBA type, I guess, books might have in regards to this is how you do it this way versus that way. The purpose is to spread the story. And also there's a map of all 350 active customers that we have in the United States. We have another 80 that are coming on board over the next three months. And we know we're working with Hilton. We're part of their elevated beverage program. So hopefully over the next few years, we'll be in the majority of the Hilton. So your room card lets you pour beer, wine, cocktails, and soda in their lobby. That sounds like a dream, making it easy for me. I love it. I saw saw, you saw on LinkedIn earlier this morning, right before we started to speak here on December the 2nd, the World Cup's happening in Qatar. I saw there was a picture of someone over there that had one of your dispensary units on one of those cruise ships. So that was amazing to see that kind of everywhere and growing. And it's so exciting to see now. I mean, What's the next challenge you're going to learn how to solve as you continue to scale and grow? I mean, it's an exciting mystery that we're all on your side and looking forward to hearing more. I want to say thank you for uh, taking the time to invest with us today and sharing the story. And certainly when the book comes out, it's about the time this episode is going to air sometime in January. So we'll definitely promote it. But thank you, Josh, for sharing everything today, man. You've been great. So thank you. Yeah. No, Matt, it's always a pleasure to get some time with you and look forward to more conversations with you. I'd like to bottle the eternal optimist and just take a shot of that every morning because it's uh, sometimes we all need that. Absolutely, my friend. Well, thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.